Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello, hello, hello. I'm your Renee Fleming hostess with the most is Michael Munoz. And welcome to In Yo Mouth. In Yo Mouth. I'm the queen of food who's always in the mood. To lick it right, lick it good. Show you how to Oh, God, that's good. I want to know what you eat from the streets to the sheets. So open wide, honey. I'm coming. In Yo Mouth. Goosebumps. And welcome back, folks. Once again, I'm your hostess with the most is Michael Munoz, but you can just call me Munoz. And I am super excited because today, as my co-host, I have my sister from another mister on the phone, all the way from San Francisco, Michael Benjamin Bragg. Say hello to the people. Yes. Well, first and foremost, I want to wish you, Michael, happy, happy, happy National Hot Cross Buns Day. Oh, is it National Hot Cross Buns Day? I didn't know. Yeah, it's September 11th, right? And besides all the rest of the terrible things that have happened in the world today, today we are going to celebrate <laughs> National Hot Cross Buns Day. Yeah, I, I don't know why, and um, I asked this question on my first pod, why we need a food holiday for every day of the year, but apparently must- it's a thing. I must say that after listening to the first one, I actually pondered this myself and and actually why we actually start this tradition of having National Day of. Like, when was that started? Why did it start? And what? why do we associate certain days with, uh, like, certain things? Like, why is today National Hot Cross Buns? Was there something that happened on, on September 11th that was hot cross bun worthy? Um, not, not that I know of, not that I know of. Um, and yeah, I, I have, (laughs) I literally have nothing to say about it. No, I've, I've tried to go down many a deep, dark hole of the internet here. Uh, you see what they did there. (laughs) Okay. This is 20 years of 20 years of friendship, folks. You know, I know how many deep, dark holes he's been down. Well, that's another story. Okay. <laughs> this is called in your mouth, not in your butt. Okay. <laughs> that's in someone, or or in someone else's butt. But um when's the last time you had a hot cross bun? I don't think I've ever had a hot cross bun. What is a hot I mean a hot cross so bun a is just a bun, right? Yeah, well, a hot cross bun is sort of a it's almost like a donut consistency is sort of a yeasty bread and then usually that has like some kind of rate like fruit in it like mostly raisins and then they cross it they cross it with some like white glaze yeah according easter maybe 
According to Wikipedia, that good site, a hot cross bun is a spice sweet bun usually made with fruit, marked with a cross on top and traditionally eaten on Good Friday in the United okay. Kingdom, Ireland, Australia, India, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, and some parts of the Americas. Wow. So all of the places where the English colonized is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. All I know about hot cross buns is that they're one a penny, two a penny. <laughs> I've never liked you. Oh my goodness! Well, moving moving right along. Uh, did you know today in gay history, KQED in San Francisco, uh, your your hometown, in 1961, yeah. broadcasts The Rejected, the first made-for-television documentary about homosexuality on American television. Oh, that's amazing. You learn something new every day. I mean, I know KQED is an amazing um, service that we at the Opera House use to, um, I work for the Opera House. I'm the librarian. I'm the I'm your Marian librarian, even though I have zero head on my hair on my head, um, that we have uh, showed many operas on KQED. So we love and support them. Oh, so, so they're, so they're a public access television? Public access television um, channel. Oh, yep. so it's like uh, it's like PBS. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. oh. Yes. Um, and not to shamelessly plug myself, but to shamelessly plug myself. Um, so when I was in San Francisco Opera's production in 2009, just 10 years ago, um, it showed it aired on KQED and PBS um, in 2015. So I think millions of people ended up watching my little brown face run across the stage. Which was amazing. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, that's a great segue into why I have you on the pod today as my fabulous co-host. Uh, my Michael Bragg and I have been friends for over 50 years at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we met at music school, both studying voice. And now Michael is the opera librarian, the fabulous opera librarian for the San Francisco Opera. But... Before that, Michael has performed all over the world um, in many an opera and many a bathhouse. And um, <laughs> I've got many performances on my belt in the bathhouse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's where he's done some of his best work. But, rave reviews. Rave reviews. Oh, my God. Standing ovations. <laughs> grand O's, even. Uh, <laughs> I had a lot of warm hands on my opening. Oh, my God. Well, we could tell that story, too. But I thought it would be really, really fun to talk about food in the opera and the opera world. And because whether you know it or not, food and opera go hand in hand. Would you oh, believe yeah. it? Would you believe it? I mean, it's the one thing that is definitely um, always around and about uh, the theater and opera in general is drinking for sure. Um, there's a very famous drinking song in, or toast as you, as they would say in the famous La Traviata, which is the Brindisi. Um, so that of course, everybody knows has been used on pasta, pasta commercials and also in like car commercials. Um, so that's probably one of the most famous sort of drinking songs that everyone would know. But we also um, talk a lot about food 
um, in opera, as specifically when it comes to sort of uh, children and food. So like, for instance, we are doing a production of Hansel and Gretel, and there's a very famous uh, scene where well, first of all, the kids immediately start talking about food because they are hungry. They are starving. So they talk about it literally within the first five minutes of the show opening. They are already talking about how they wish they had some sweets and, and some buns to eat and fresh milk, cream from the cow. Mm. Uh, so, so buns to eat and cream from the cow, baby. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sounds like my Saturday night. <laughs> Um, well, um, I found this really interesting article from the Royal uh, Opera on the Royal Opera House site um, about like divas and dining. Why is opera obsessed with food? And and this gentleman, I think, Fred Plotkin. Are you familiar with his work? Yes. Oh, are you? <laughs> I am a little bit. Yeah. I mean, oh, I don't. I, I don't. I don't know who that man is. Who is he? He is um, sort of an opera and food critic. Oh, so uh, he goes on to say every opera character is nourished by something, whether we see them consume it or not. Violetta thrived on champagne. Puccini's Bohemian starved. It begs the question, does Madama Butterfly, who lives in Japan but sings in Italian, eat soba noodles with pesto? (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Soba noodles with ketchup. Oh my goodness. Wait, so I kind of want to start at the very beginning here. And what drew, like, what's the draw to opera? What is, what would we say today is the draw to opera? Why go? So I think, first first of all, I mean, these are questions that I myself have been asking myself since I started in the business when I was 17 years old, you know, starting off in college and getting sort of delving deep into sort of the classical world. And then really, truly becoming a super fan of opera and then performing opera for 20 years of my life. Um, I think what it is, is it's it first start, for me, it first started with music. And it was just the idea that something so, it's a huge collaborative art form. I mean, you can't have, there's one thing doesn't make the one the thing that makes it work. So it's not just the singing, it's not just the orchestra, it's not just the production, it's all of those things in combination. It's almost like a movie before there were movies. And so for me, it was it started with this amazing music that is so intricate and so heart-wrenching. And then you add stories on top of that with people doing alien things like singing in 3,200 seat houses, unamplified over an 80-piece orchestra. And then you get the wow factor. You get the sort of athleticism of the art form, which is, it's sport, you know? Well, I want to, uh, wait, 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 wait. Yes, uh, I'm going to interrupt I'm you sorry, because you- a lot to unpack there. No, no, no. There is a lot to unpack there. I want to start with alien things. Yeah. So, uh, as, as uh, like, you, are we talking about like Area Fifty Seven alien things, and are <laughs> and are we going to storm the barricade on well, September, whatever? It yeah, is. it's coming I mean, up. Right. By using the word alien, I mean like sort of superhuman um, or otherworldly, because it what it is is so unlike what we see in our everyday lives in a modern world. We don't see people singing live. Unamplified. We don't hear people playing instruments acoustic no. in a hall. Like it's just not something that we do in our everyday lives. Most Unless, of our digital uh, or media or you know, yeah. we're watching a sort of a two-dimensional screen or hearing things digitally. Yeah, um, on, I mean, unless you're going to some local bar for open mic night, right? Exactly. Even, even even then, they're like mic'd mic. or like yeah, acoustic night at at Jimmy John's or or. Mm-hmm. 
wherever exactly. it may be. Everything, everything we're getting is some sort of somehow, I think, electronically produced. Mm-hmm. Hello, you're listening yeah. to a, you're listening to a podcast. Oh, wow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we are both talking into a digital format, you know? Yeah. Um, so just that in, in and of itself is sort of what I would say, like alien. Um, and so it's just not a part of our everyday lives. We don't, we don't get a chance to hear things or hear sound produced or made in an acoustic way. Um, but is that but is that enough of a draw? Do you think because no, because, because I, people it, are saying it, like it's a dying art form? Is it really? I don't think so. I think it is an art form that's always been that's always been on that had a um, its heyday a, a many years ago, um, and is still maintaining. It's still around. It, it opera is produced all over the world. There's probably not very very few places in the world that are untouched by opera. As far as what I mean to say by that is like sort of developed countries, you know, um, mm-hmm. in most developed worlds, there's probably an opera company somewhere in those countries. So you're telling um, me we can't go to the Ethiopian opera house when we take I our know. vacation? I know, that, I know that that classical music and Western, I should say Western music, um, it has made its way to Africa. And there are, for instance, Pretty Yende, who is, um, I forget where she is, Nigerian, maybe. Um, I should a way, a way to just ruin my joke. Sorry. <laughs> well, that's good old Michael, ruiner of jokes. Oh my God. You're like, bitch, I am not, you are not going to do that. Uh-uh. Right? I'm going to tell you that those Ethiopians are, are out there being like, <laughs> like Africa is, is where a lot of places, uh, a lot of great opera singers are coming out of these days. Um, and it's kind of an, it's really, really great because it's representation of a country that many people didn't never thought of when it would come to opera, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that way, it's, it really will draw people from all over the world too. So it's not just, you know, an, an art form that is specifically for one demographic. I will say that till the day I die, it's not for just rich white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, it, it's music. It's just like anything else. I love Beyonce as much as I love Vogue. And yeah. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And we should, we should celebrate anything that is creative and, and it may not be your taste, but I have an appreciation for most things as I can say that you do too. Um, yeah. And so I think it's just, I think it's a, a, an art form that people don't think of, but actually is so completely and utterly moving if you just allow yourself to be washed in what it is and relax into something that may feel foreign to you yeah Um, it's kind of like water sports oh yes exactly i had to relax myself into that and let it wash over you Um, wait a minute. I, I, I just keep jumping so wait, back. Yeah, we get back. We got to get back to the food and opera, well, right? Yes, but I keep on, I just want to jump back really quick, quickly. Cause I did a quick search of Ethiopian opera. Cause now I'm curious now that I, I was an ass and tried to make like a stupid joke here. I wanted to be like, is there Ethiopian opera? And I'm not getting any, uh, Google hits, but what I am getting is, uh, the Ethiopian princess of opera. Do you know who it is? No, who's that? It's the Verdi opera about an Ethiopian princess. Oh yes, Aida. Hello, yes, so, yes. In that way, you know, it is. There's opera subjects about about Ethiopia. Yeah, you know, I know. I I, it's just, it's just also interesting, and I really yeah. wanted to touch on like 
why we should go kind of or why we should still be going and and what's the draw first before we get into like the food section obviously this we're we're on a food podcast here but i think it's important i mean i grew up obviously as did you with uh, the love of bugs bunny you know that's like that was a lot of our generation's introduction to opera opera and orchestra and symphonic music Right, you know? Fantasia, all of those things. Chopin, yep. everybody, yep. Shostakovich, all of it. Wagner, um, even uh, Willy Wonka and uh, Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. You know, right? Yep. That uh, it was. What was it? Mendelssohn. That's my. Uh, yeah. That's exactly. my. That's my text message sound. Everyone thinks it's really annoying, by the way. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I love it. Um, and so I don't think the younger generations are being exposed to that with. Uh, with things like Teen Titans or Dora the Explorer or right. or or um, or whatnot, so I think that's that's kind of unfortunate, you know, because yeah. these things these things, although problematic, they they had problematic sections, you know, and well, uh, there's a long racist history and so on and so forth. Yeah. So, for instance, um, we at San Francisco Opera, which I love that we do this. I am so happy to be a part of a company that really does these kind this kind of work. Is um, every year in our opening season, which we just opened this this past Friday, our fall season with Romeo and Juliet. Um, then the following day on that Saturday was a production of Billy Budd, which is from the an adaptation of the Melville novel. Um, and then on Sunday. Sunday this yesterday, we had a free concert in Golden Gate Park, which a bunch of the artists um, and conductors come and give a free concert to the public in Golden Gate Park. And it is a part of our regular opening uh, weekend celebration. And oh, I love wow. that because it, what it does is it gives people access to what we do on their turf in a space that is that is the park. It's a public space. We're, we're providing, you know, entertainment and, and exposure to young kids who are just walking through the park with their with their parents that will stop and and listen. Um, and Is it's this... amazing to watch to watch people who probably would never otherwise think of going to the opera house or even know where the opera house is in the city um, have access and get to see that. We also on September 21st um, do a simulcast. It's a live performance simulcast um, that happens at the AT&T ballpark. And basically what it is is that we it's going to be a live show at the Opera House. People will show up at the Opera House. Three to 200 people will show up at the Opera House and watch a live performance. And what we do is we stream that live to the ballpark and 30,000 people show up for free, sit in the, state, in the, the um, AT&T ballpark and watch opera. Is there a is there a guy that comes through and it's like get get your popcorn here while they go through that <laughs> or what's or what's opera food champagne here get your champagne uh, and crumpets you <laughs> food um but you're just not watching a ball game you're watching opera yeah. and an amazing amazing speaking of food at the opera i mean what a great way to you know ballpark food at the opera you're not going to get oh that God. at the memorial opera house and laura uh, knows we love a sausage that's did a you... long hot dog girl that's what i want <laughs> did you know that mozart loves sweets and wagner dabbled in vegetarianism and oh, verdi yeah. was a farmer who grew his own food and rossini cooked risotto while he composed <laughs> <laughs> And Caruso ate spinach and chicken livers for strength. 
Well, let me tell you something. All of those guys needed to keep their strength up, so they had to eat a lot of food because composing is hard work. It takes a lot of brain power to create a four-hour long, a two-hour long, even an hour and a half long up. A lot of a lot of like brain power. So the brain is just like anything else. It needs to be nourished with food, you know. Yeah, for um, sure. Um, I was. I also and found this John Cage, who didn't write any operas, but he was obsessed with mushrooms and actually wrote two cookbooks about mushrooms. Oh wow! You yourself should probably have those since you like mushroom. Uh, well, uh, the Times Square Studio is limited in space here, <laughs> so <laughs> there's no more room for books. I will just have to look that just, one up. I'll have to get the ebook. Yes, I'll, you can put it on your Kindle. Yes, thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, um, I found this really interesting article as well from the New York Times from 2012 talking about, uh, uh, it's called Don't Sing With Your Mouth Full. And it's a very interesting article about food and opera. And um, Daniel J. Walken uh, goes on to say, opera of all the art forms is singularly associated with food, whether because of the appetites of well-girthed singers or the sensual pleasures celebrated in its rich ragu of music, emotion, and stagecraft. I love that. The rich ragu. I love a rich ragu. Right? right. I prefer rich magu. Uh, but Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, we wouldn't have to work if we all had sugar daddies, honey. <laughs> oh God! Listen, all I can go for it is a Splendor Daddy. At um, this point, um, yeah, he goes on to say that hardly a performance goes by without some reference to a meal. Enough so that cookbooks and even scholarly scholarly articles have been de- devoted to the subject. Opera yeah. luminaries have dishes named after them, like peach melba and melba toast, inspired by the Australian soprano. Nellie Melba. Yep. Wow. Um, there's also, um, you know, there's opera cake. You've heard of that. Mm-hmm. Do you know where that comes from? I don't know where that comes from, but it's delicious wherever that comes from. I do know that at the Mozart Cafe in New York, they have named um, certain desserts, I think, um, after certain sopranos or, or singers that have sung at the Met that will go to the Mozart Cafe frequently. Um, like, I know that there was a Renee Fleming dessert there for a minute. They designed a, 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 a like, sort of, some sort of, like, um, little sort of cake named the Renee Fleming or something like that, or the Diva or something. <clears throat> and it was after her. Um, I think Pavarotti has had a couple of dishes named after him, you know, because he was a big-time eater. Uh, he was a big-time everything. He was a big-time everything. <laughs> You know, what I think is is an important thing about opera and food and why it's such the two go hand in hand is that, as you know, being a performer, performing is a, is a wildly active thing. And you get hungry when you're in performance or before performance, you want to like stock up on your energy. And after performance, you know, that's why singers are, or, or dancers or performers, even actors after a show will be like, I need to eat. I'm hungry because it takes a lot of energy to perform it takes a lot of mental energy it takes a lot of physical energy and so i think this idea that when we are performing we want food because it is it's like energy giving it gives you know it gives us all what we need my preference was to eat after a show i could never really eat before a show i know some singers um that literally in the intermission will order food and have it delivered to them so that it's waiting for them in inter- intermission and they'll eat a whole meal before they go on. 
again, like a 25 minute, you know, wow. and people at the opera will actually, our cafe at the opera house, you can buy uh, a whole three course meal. And basically you come about an hour or, or 45 minutes before the curtain goes and you have your, 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 um, sort of first main, your first course come in half at the intermission. You have your second course. And then after the show, the cafe stays open and you can have dessert. And so it's kind of like a lovely way to sort of have dinner in the theater, you know? That's really interesting. In this uh, New York Times article, and I want to ask you about this, uh, he goes on to say, the Met even has a backstage kitchen for meeting the culinary demands of librettos. And singers regularly face the challenge of timing bites between musical phrases. As someone who's worked at the Met, have you, uh, do you know of this backstage kitchen? I do. And it's actually, um, so in one of the, the first show I was ever in, um, Valkyrie, there was, um, <clears throat> the beginning of Valkyrie is, is about an hour and a half long. And, um, the, the characters are basically on stage the whole hour and a half. They don't really have time, depending on the production, they don't have a lot of time to, to run off or run backstage, but there was always somebody backstage during that first act that if someone was like, I need to, I need some, I need something to, to throw in my mouth because I'm like starving and my stomach is, is I'm, I can't get through. There was someone back there to give them a piece of beef jerky, or they would ask the needs of the singers, like, what would you prefer? Um, and it was the weirdest thing to see. And also at the Met, they have a canteen there. Cause you know, there, cause you've, you've worked there as well. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, but, I mean, not to, Toot my own horn. Well, there's no one else. <laughs> girl. Uh, you're telling me, honey, it's drier than the Sahara Desert up in this <laughs> up in this Times Square studio. Oh, even you know? my own horn so long. I don't know how to let anybody else toot it. Listen, uh, I um uh, I referenced that Brandy song uh, in my first uh, episode, and and it it still holds true. Just here, sitting up in my room. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but, it's, I mean, it was an amazing thing to see. I mean, there's so much that happens in that building that is probably not the norm in most theaters. I'm yeah. one of those. The thing that we're just that canteen is massive. It's massive, and it stays open from the beginning, from opening of that building until the building closes. You know, because there's so many people in and out of that building, and it's yeah. all subsidized. That's why it's so cheap. Um, That's crazy. So, that yeah, is so crazy. Amazing. Yeah. I want to take a short break right now to introduce you, because you've never been part of this, to my favorite part and the audience's favorite part of the podcast, Food News Update! Food News Update! Food News! Oh, honey, you ain't ready, girl! Spill the tea! News Update! New York has announced its solution to the city's rat problem. And it involves booze. Oh, really? Yeah. According to Delish.com, um, New York officials have announced a new plan to deal with the overwhelming number of rats plaguing the city streets. And get this, it involves alcohol. I don't know how I feel about this. So the contraption is called Echo Mill, um, and it's been tested in one of Brooklyn's most rat-infested neighborhoods and shows a effective results. Essentially, Echo Mill lures the rodents with the promise of food and then drops them down a trap door into a box filled with alcohol. The liquor immediately knocks them out. They don't feel any pain, allegedly. And then they drown. What? (laughs) 
Isn't that crazy? Wait a minute. So basically, they give them booze that sort of makes them tipsy, which causes them to like sort of like pass out or like do what we all do when we get a little drunk. And then they die because they drown in the liquid. That sounds terrible. That sounds terrible. But I mean, also, I mean, at least they're not conscious when they're drowning. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, I heard I, once unless upon they a wake time. Up and they're drowning. I heard. Yes. I heard once upon a time that if you drown, like, let's say, God forbid, one of us was drowning, like you pass out, but your body gives you one last jolt of like revival to try to save yourself. And then like your lungs explode or something like that. God, that sounds terrible. Does that sound terrible? I don't know how true that is, but if that happens in humans, wouldn't that ha- wouldn't you think that happens in animals too? Yeah, because mammals, all- anything that has like a yeah. lung, right? Yeah, exactly. I I mean, granted, the rats spread disease, and uh, we that's all right. remember we all remember the Black Plague. Hello. So- yeah. Well, <laughs> I, you know what? That's that. You know, you know, what we're having to deal with right now, Mojos. We're having to deal with our fucking like super liberal guilt. Which is like, we don't want any living thing to suffer. But it's like, okay, well, they, these are rats and they are going to outlive us anyway. And so we're going to do a little population control. <laughs> but, who, I mean, but who gives us that right? On and, the, and, the, and the fucking, you know, the earth is being blown up from because we're being stupid about it. The, yeah. the roaches and the rats are going to be here fighting it out. Yeah, they'll, so. they'll, be, they'll be the last ones. But what, what happens if it's pizza rat? What about the pizza rat? What does that mean? You don't know pizza rat? Pizza rat was this internet famous rat that found a piece of pizza and dragged oh, a whole right. slice of pizza. I, I don't uh, I don't want pizza rat to drown. Well, you know what? Pizza rat, he he don't deserve to, to eat because he was fatty. He was being fatty glutter. I, I mean, he's committing one of the seven deadly sins. So <laughs> <laughs> Gluttony. <laughs> so he got, he, you know what? He deserves it. And, and with that, I'm going to, uh, this is a message for all the rats out there. <laughs> <laughs> Beware of the the um you know the cold duck that's waiting for you down those holes. <laughs> Amazon's new payment system scans your hand instead of a credit card, and it could be coming to your local Whole Foods. Wow! Do you know that I was literally just having this conversation with a friend of mine, um, and he was talking about how in J- that's already happening in Japan. Yeah. So and, once again, yeah. according to my favorite website for all my food news, Delish.com, basically, Amazon engineers have developed a camera that, with your permission, hello, consent, uh, will have the ability to access your hands' shape and size, and then charge a credit card link to your Amazon account. Get this: you won't even have to touch a scanner. The program called Orville internally will be able to scan your hand's depth and uniqueness from afar. Wow. Wow, guys. Wow. I mean, uh, imagine. Talk about a, talk about a uh, security nightmare. Security breach nightmare. Indeed. But listen, I, I want to be, I, I want to be behind the hand scanning because you know, uh, a man's hand size is directly correlated with his glove size. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I need access to that database. Okay. Cause you need some gloves, girl. Cause it's just cold. <laughs> up in New York. Cause there ain't no heat in this, in this Times Square studio. Oh, God. 
Uh, I mean, days because our phones are listening to us and recording wherever we are. Um, I mean, like you always have that information as well. Yes, that's it. You pulled you pulled that comment right out of my head. Uh, at, know, this point, at this point, Amazon is listening to us. Apple is listening to us. Uh, the podcast listeners are listening to. <laughs> so everybody knows that I wasn't at that Seven Eleven trying to steal those taquitos. At least not yesterday. Maybe four weeks ago. But... <laughs> oh God. Highly relatable raccoons busted for being day drunk in residential neighborhood. Okay, wait a minute. Say that one more time. (laughs) (laughs) Highly relatable raccoons busted for being day drunk in residential neighborhood. So wait a minute. How did they know that the raccoons were drunk? So apparently, uh, as everyone knows. What happened was. What happened was. The raccoons went to drag brunch, Penny, and, <laughs> and saw Miss Pixie. Hamburg- hamburger Mary's mimosa got all of them bitches. <laughs> all of them raccoon bitches. Uh, crunk, honey. Uh, no, uh, really. Um, so we all know raccoons are nocturnal. This article comes from Munchies. And fuck. Yes, this article comes from Munchies. Thank you, Munchies at Vice.com. And so apparently some... Uh, residents in Ottawa were confused when they saw them wandering around in broad daylight. Um, They were apparently staggering down the road mid-afternoon. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Um, According to CBC News, Emily Rogers watched a raccoon moving unsteadily through her yard. She called 311. He couldn't really move. He was dragging his legs. He was wobbling, having a hard time standing up. You could tell something was wrong with him for sure. Another woman was surprised when an officer said he'd received a call about an intoxicated looking raccoon who was on her property. So apparently a biology professor from Ottawa's Carleton University explained that, yeah, those raccoons were probably drunk on rotten fruit. It's possible that some of the fruit is fermenting under the heat and that these Uh guys are getting a bit tipsy by eating that fermenting fruit. Also, last November, police officers in West Virginia fielded several calls about raccoons that were behaving erratically to the point that the callers worried that the animals might have rabies. Instead, the cops had to deal with several day drinkers. Listen, this is this is no different than any Sunday in in the neighborhood. Yeah. In New York or all over America. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That is ridiculous. Well, listen, I, you know what? I have a peach tree in my backyard and there's so many peaches that we can't pick them off fast enough. So a bunch of them have fallen on the ground, which, we, you know, and started to sort of um, rot, get, yeah, get rotten. And so I'm just like, and we, I saw a raccoon. I told you the story a few weeks ago. And so I, I may have to like be on the lookout for a drunk raccoon eating up peaches. Yeah, exactly. Or, peaches. or you know what? Share the wealth. Leave the rest of that. Leave the rest of the henny out for them to drink. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, I think that's a great end to food news update. Yes, yes, yes. How was that for you? That was fantastic for me. I had to take a cigarette break. Yes, uh, a cigarette, cigarette, and a hot cross bun break. Ooh, yeah, maybe a fermented peach. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
what you should be making with those peaches? You should be like infusing vodka or making moonshine with them fermented peaches. Yes, honey. Oh, so you know what's as you like, it's funny that you say that. So for opening night, one of my colleagues gave me this um, beautiful uh, bottle of Egyptian chamomile. And in like beautifully like tied with a little ribbon was this like um, very Elizabethan sort of Shakespearean set of like uh, scroll thing inside. I was like, oh, what is this? This is like a little like, oh, happy opening kind of thing. And so when I opened it up, it was a recipe for Egyptian chamomile infused vodka. Ooh, chamomile chamomile peach. That sounds Uh, delicious. Yeah, so basically what you do is you take the, the, the chamomile, you make the tea and then you, um, or sorry, you don't, you don't make the tea. You take like a, a like table, couple tablespoons of the chamomile and then with some lemon zest and, um, something else. And you just add it into a bottle of vodka, let it sit for three weeks and that's infused. Yeah. So now I think I'll just add a couple of slices of uh, peaches in there and call it a day. I, I, that's what I would do. I got all the peaches and now I got this beautiful sort of Egyptian chamomile to make. You know, going back to food and opera for a minute, are there mm-hmm. any? And uh, now I'm looking up famous songs about food in opera. Um, well, there's the very famous um, scene where the witches, like again, I'm referencing Hansel and Gretel, um, where they're referencing the food that they're eating at the witch's table. Okay. Um, and then there's also the very, very, very famous um, dining room scene of the in Tosca where it's the scene um, where he calls in Tosca and Cavaradosi because he's been torturing Cavaradosi for some information about the uh, whereabouts of, of one of his friends. And um, while he's being tortured, there's this massive table where he's getting ready to dine. <clears throat> and he always makes reference to, you know, this is interrupting my, my, my dinner time. This whole meeting is interrupting my dinner time. And so usually in most productions, there's like a slavish spread. And in that scene is when Tosca kills him with basically a steak knife because he's eating a big old steak or whatever he's going to have. He's a big knife on on the table um, to either cut the turkey or cut the steak or whatever they put out on the table for whatever production. Um, and that's what she kills him with. Um, and oh. So that's a very, very famous sort of dinner scene in an opera. Probably, I don't know, I'm trying to think right now of another opera scene that would have that sort of i can't it's escaping me right this minute but i'm sure that there are a million of them you know so apparently um from this new york times article the title character of verdi's falstaff is one of the great oh, yeah. operatic eaters yes of course he's always in the in the scene that we open it up he's always got like either a big old massive turkey leg in his hand or something some kind yeah, of like apparently you know, as he recounts at the opera's <laughs> opening is for six chickens three turkeys two <laughs> pheasants one anchovy and 30 bottles of sherry and a partridge in a pear tree <laughs> um false I mean, that's yep. that's really really interesting that's mm-hmm. so interesting <laughs> things that make you go Hmm. 
Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Michael Bragg was also part of the reading of the Willy Wonka uh, musical called The Golden Ticket. Which also has, basically, is all about sort of some some semblance of food. Augustus Gloop famously, you know, dies in the, in the uh, has to get stuck in the chocolate chute. And then with, with What's Her Bucket turning into the grape and needing to be juiced, um, you know, that's wildly, wildly. Um, and then obviously she's not eating it, but you know, um, what's her name? What it's Veruca, yes, yeah, Veruca salt, the yeah, Veruca salt in the chewing gum, yeah, yeah. I have um, a blueberry for a daughter. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I'd love to be a blueberry. Um, yeah, it's it's just so interesting that this topic is. Although when I proposed this to you, I didn't actually realize how much people are actually talking about food in opera. So much yeah. so that it's called gastromusicology. Oh, really? You know that? Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, food is so central to the operas of Giuseppe Verdi that the University of Notre Dame musicologist Pierpaolo Ponzonetti that's a okay. has written papers on the subject. He has come up with the with what he calls the laws of gastromusicology to explain what food can signify in opera. Look at that. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Like, Interesting. Oh. Yeah. There's even um a company out there called Food Opera where the plate is the stage. And they create all these events. That they're multi-sensory dining experience that they call food operas, okay. uh, where the plate is the stage as diners encounter a customized soundtrack that responds to their individual rhythms and decisions. Music pairings are delivered via a custom speaker array that positions the source of the sound as close as possible to the dish it accompanies. Is that some bullshit or what? <laughs> so I'm still I'm still confused on how this works. So would they play a track and while you're eating and then from that somehow the plate senses how what music you're going to like better? No, I think it's I think what happens is depending on I guess you'd I I would assume I don't know. Um I'm looking at their website right now and this is all it says is that I I would assume that they get some information from you uh, oh, before yeah. entering before entering and then as you make decisions like the food arrives and there's like a personal speaker that is kind of playing music that kind of accompanies that like remember that time in college where we sat on uh, we laid on the dorm room floor and just kept playing different music like big old music nerds and watch the trees change <laughs> right so that's basically what they're doing is with food yeah i see i see oh that's interesting yeah. so like since if you were having sort of like a surf and turf you may get like britain sea interludes yeah or <laughs> something i don't know <laughs> apparently this merging of the senses encourages an intensified awareness, enhancing appreciation and enjoyment of not only music and food, but the overall atmosphere of the restaurant. And when in looking at food opera events, they did one in Berlin. One was at, oh my God, in Spain. They do them all over. They do them all. Uh, our second collaboration with the Boston Symphony Orchestra and Chef David Verdo. They do them all over the place. That's interesting. Um, one of my colleagues um, who's become a friend of mine, Ronnie Michael Greenberg, um, he asked me to be a part of this um, series to help sort of curate and be 
I'm a program planner, like to create programming for this series, <clears throat> recital series that he does in the Bay, where he picks either a country or region um, and picks food and wine of that region and presents a recital with music that is from that particular region or country. Um, and so then you're having this like really, really sort of niched experience. So like, let's say you're there, we're doing like Neapolitan songs and French chanson, you know? And so- yeah. What he, what he does is he gets, he will go to different chefs and ask them like, what is the, the, the food or cuisine of these, of Neapolitans and whatever specific French, you know, area that he wants to sort of premiere. And then also goes and talks to sommeliers around the bay just to get ideas. And then we sit in a room and test all of that and say, okay, we think that when you sing this set of songs, this is the wine that you should pair that with that set. So people are he hearing not only like Neapolitan songs from that specific region of Italy, but then they're also getting the cuisine of that specific region of Italy and also a wine. So it oh. really, it's sort of, yeah, it's really sort of a fascinating thing. And people's response to that is so amazing because you're getting this really intimate sort of um salon experience but it's paired with food and wine and it and people love it it's amazing to see how fast these these and it's always in someone's like sort of private home or a um a sort of a, a space that has a piano but not necessarily a, specifically a concert hall um so you so there is the the idea is that people can sit at a table and eat and drink so I'm having I'm having uh, chicken and brown rice and broccoli tonight. What would be my? Uh... <laughs> would you say chicken and brown a chicken with broccoli and brown rice? Yeah, that's that's what I'm having for dinner tonight. So what what am I listening to? And it's not it's not like a Chinese takeout chicken and broccoli. <laughs> I would say you'd listen to Debussy's gamelan music. Okay. Um, well, uh, uh, I think it's time to gamble on and wrap this ish up. <laughs> I really want to thank you for being my co-host today and kind of taking this journey with me through If Food Be the Music of Life. How does that go? <laughs> if music be the food of life, sing on, sing on. And with that, I'm going I'm to say thank you to you for coming on. Let's let the children know where they can find you if, if you want to be found. You can find me on Instagram as Bragg the Tenor, um, on Facebook as Benjamin Bragg, and on uh, Grinder, oh, that big old hole. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the Opera House will really appreciate that one. Um, uh, or you can find me at San Francisco Opera Monday through Friday, ten to six. Um, and now that we are in the season, usually on a Saturday or a Sunday, I'll be, you can always find me. I'm the, the gay black man running around the halls. Uh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> uh, I, I, we need more of those. We need more of Amen. those. And with that, uh, th big thank you once again to my, uh, my sister from another Mr. Michael Bragg. And thank you to you all out there for listening to In Yo Mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.